Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from AltaSpeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Earlier today, actually really yesterday, Attorney General William Barr called on Apple to unlock a phone of the Pensacola shooter, the man who murdered three people and injured uh, eight others on a naval base in Florida back in December. And Apple has come out and basically told uh, told the FBI, uh, no, we're not going to do that. Now, this follows hot on the heels just four years ago when Apple gave a similar answer to a another shooter who committed a large act of, you know, a major act of violence. And it was believed that critical evidence may or may not be contained in the shooter's iPhone. Apple says, quote, we have always maintained that there is no such thing as a backdoor just for the good guys. Now, despite the immense pressure from the United States government, Apple has has taken the position that giving anybody access to a user's data or a backdoor into their phones, even when the suspected person is suspected of a very serious crime like terrorism or violence, would compromise everybody else who hasn't done anything wrong. And of course, that stance and that principle is true. Those Anytime you violate the privacy of one person in response to a terroristic act or in response to any act, really, you're doing far more damage in the long term. Quote, we were devastated to learn of the tragic terrorist attacks of members of the U.S. Armed Forces at the Naval Air Station in Pensacola, to Florida on December 6th. We have the greatest respect for law enforcement and routinely work with police across the country with their investigations. When law enforcement requests our assistance, our teams work around the clock to provide them with the information they have. So you might be asking to yourself, what information is it that they have? Within six hours of the FBI's first request on December 6th, that Apple was able to hand the FBI six, le- they, oh, I'm sorry, the FBI sent six legal requests for information about iCloud backups, account information, and the transactional data for the accounts in question. And Apple was able to turn that data over. Now, what's interesting about that is from December 6th or December 7th, and this all this investigation really primarily took off between December 6th and December 14th, nobody really reported on or talked about the fact that these users have backed up their data and so While Apple may or may not give access to the phone themselves, they're going to take the data that was backed up to their cloud service and hand that over to the FBI. Nobody talks about that. But the fact that Apple stood up to the FBI and said, no, we're not going to unlock the phone for you, that makes headlines around the tech community. And it's something, if I'm being honest with you, kind of confuses me. Uh, The article... 
from Apple, quote, backdoors can be exploded, exploited by those who threaten our national security and the data security of our customers. Today, law enforcement has access to more data than they ever have before in history, so Americans do not have to choose between weakening encryption and solving investigations. We feel strongly that encryption is vital to protecting our country and our users' data. Now, here's the key point to me. The key point to me is the fact that Apple predisposes the decisions that they're making as to how their users are going to react. Recall, when Snowden leaked documents, it was Apple and Google and Microsoft and Yahoo that were working with the federal government to turn over data to the NSA and the FBI when it was requested of them. And it was only after these things came out and these companies were publicly shamed that Google all of a sudden has this newfound interest in privacy and they have the private and Facebook has now the privacy checkup tool and Apple doesn't turn its data over to users because encryption is vital to protecting their, their customer. You know, all of this stuff comes out after they're already got caught with their hand in the cookie jar. So you'll have to excuse me if I pro approach this with a certain level of skepticism. The ACLU Surveillance and Cybersecurity Council's Jennifer Granick sent out a strongly worded rebuke of the request saying, like four years ago, and of course she's referencing the last time the FBI was asked to intervene in an investigation and break open an iPhone. By the way, that iPhone, to the best of my understanding, was cracked by a third party, not Apple, though. Like four years ago, the government's demand would weaken the security of millions of iPhones and is a dangerous and unconstitutional. There is simply no way for Apple or any other company to provide the FBI access to encrypted communication without also providing an authoritative, authoritative regime, foreign governments and weakening our defenses against criminals and hackers. Here's what she is. Here's what I take away from her comment and the way that this situation is being handled at large because there's a lot of people on the internet today and people in our telegram group which if you're not a part of you should join at telegram.asknoahshow.com lots of people out there are debating and giving a lot of congratulatory comments to apple and i think in this article what they don't say is just as important as what they do say in this case notice she says there is simply no way for apple or any other company to provide the FBI access to encrypted communication without also providing it to authoritative foreign governments and weakening our defenses against criminal hackers. Notice it doesn't stop with just, there's simply no way for Apple to provide any company information to the FBI, right? It's encrypted, it's locked, there's nothing they could do. She doesn't say that. I don't like Apple, but I will be the first to admit that I fully support what Apple is doing here. Apple has taken the right stance. They're standing up to the federal government and saying, listen, we're in business to make money and customers come to us because they want an end-to-end -end solution and part of that end-to-end -end solution is privacy. People want to be able to walk into the latest iStore or the latest Apple store. They want to buy their new iPad. They want to sign into their account and then they want all of their photos and pictures and videos and notes and all of that stuff to sync right down to it. They like that because then they can pick up any device that they wish to use and no matter which device they wish to use, all of their data and information is available to, their, uh, available to them at their fingertips. So how do we bundle that sort of convenience with privacy? And Apple, to their credit, has done a very good job at implementing a ton of privacy features. Everything from permissions on the phone that request every single time an app is opened. If you look at the differences between iOS 
and Android and the way that the permission system works on Android inside of the Play Store. When you open up an app, it'll tell you here are all the position, here are all the permissions that the device that the is going to be requested from the device. And then you can choose to either install that app or not install that app. On iOS, by contrast, you can install any app you want. The first time you run the app, it pops up and it tells you every time it's going to disclose a piece of personal information. Hey, this app is requesting location data. Do you want to share this? Hey, this app is requesting access to your microphone. Hey, this app is requesting access to your camera. And when you run that device for any length of time, you start to appreciate that. And you start to appreciate the way that they have modeled their system to respect users' privacy. And I will give them all the credit in the world for that. It is better than Android. In fact, many of the features that we have available on Android today from a privacy standpoint stemmed from Apple's iOS. If you look at the way that permissions in general, uh, notifications permissions specifically, actually, that was something that started on iOS, that granular application style push notification control that you can just say this application can send me a push notification, this one can't. That all stemmed from Apple. But notice, even on the latest version of Android, if you, when you, no matter what you do, by default, every application has the ability to send you push notifications. Now, they're getting better as push notifications come repeatedly. One of the things I'm noticing on my, um, my Android phone is it tells me, hey, this app is continually sending you repeat notifications. You want to see these? And then I can click no and it'll shut them off. But by default, they're on. I'm going to get bugged at least once. And Apple has a default off. So, it's clear that they have restructured their business in a, in a post-Snowden world to prioritize the customer, prioritize the client, and prioritize privacy to a certain extent. I submit to you, though, that their position on privacy and their decision to make these things more difficult for the FBI and other attackers to obtain is starts as a publicity stunt. I don't really know how seriously they they actually take this and, and i'll make my case for it consider this and by the way i would invite anybody to join our interactive mumber room and debate me on this i would invite anybody to join us in free node pound ask noah show and debate me on this i would invite any of you to call in at 855-450 noah and debate me on this but here's my case as to why I believe this is a publicity stunt on Apple's part because they're not actually defending any sort of technical protection. They're just saying, hey, we're going to choose not to give access to this phone. Not we can't give access, we're choosing not to. Here it is. iOS 12 was, brags about the new feature that allows the phone to update automatically. Now, from their perspective, from Apple's perspective, that is, when the biggest threat to users is low-hanging fruit. So when people don't update their phones and they're subjected to certain vulnerabilities and you're walking around with exploits in your pocket and you connect to that public Wi-Fi network in a coffee house or whatever, and it's not the vast majority of public networks, I have to tell you, when we go into a, a place and either audit them or bid out a system for a replacement guest Wi-Fi system, you would be terrified to learn how many of the quote-unquote guest Wi-Fi hotspots are nothing more than a Linksys router that they just plugged in uh, to, to the back of their modem. Now, that's gotten a little better in the past few years because large chains have started to mandate that they work with qualified, what they're calling HSIA or high-speed internet access providers. And as part of that, there is PCI compliance that's put in place. So you have to have separation between your, your guest VLAN and you know the admin network. And 
they they usually want client separation and stuff like that. So it the 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 market is moving in the right direction. Even home Belkin routers and Linksys routers now come equipped with a guest Wi-Fi access only that only permits traffic to go to the default gateway and out to the internet. It doesn't permit it to interact with other devices on the network. But I'll bet you 70 to 70 70 to 80% of the businesses that we visit aren't using any of those features. They just they go to Office Max or Best Buy. They pick up an Asus router or a Linksys router, and they take it back to their business. They plug it into the internet. They fire it up. They change the SSID. Maybe they put a password. Most likely they don't. And when you join that network, your network traffic is bouncing around a, a switch and a router with everybody else's network traffic, and all you have to do is fire up Wireshark to see what's going across the internet. By the way, that is not protected as private information if it's unencrypted because anybody can get to it. So there's no law preventing you from running Wireshark on a public network as long as you're, you're sniffing unencrypted traffic. Anybody can get to it. You're not even breaking the law. And this is a major problem. It permits people to set up man-in-the-middle attacks because you can proxy traffic from one device to the other. These are notoriously insecure to begin with. You can mitigate a lot of those risks and a lot of that threat vector by staying up to date and having the latest operating system installed and the latest patches installed, it will defend you against a lot of these things. The problem is users, every time they're given a choice between convenience and security, they're going to choose convenience because at the end of the day, people didn't buy their iPhones or their Android phones for that matter to have a highly secure device in their pocket. They bought it because they want to get on Instagram and they want to get on Facebook and they want to send some text messages and they want to Snapchat their friends. That's, that's what people buy iPhones for. And so when you're working with that kind of crowd, you can't rely on people to perform system updates at a regular interval. That's going to take a couple hours. I'm going to be off of Instagram for those hours. That's not going to work, right? So with iOS 12, there is this feature to automatically update the phone. That sounds like a great idea. And certainly it does limit the threat vector for the, the low-hanging fruit type people. The people are sitting in coffee shops with rogue access points waiting for somebody to connect to Xfinity Wi-Fi or, a, or a AT&T, whatever the default SSID on the, on the hotspots that are in the stores that people may have connected to once and their phones will unintentionally reconnect, right? The default to Apple's credit is off, that it won't automatically apply the updates, but the user is prompted, and I quote, to ensure your iPhone, iPad, or iPod Touch are up to date, turn on automatic updates. This option is available. It will automatically download the latest version of iOS when available. Updates from Apple are sent from Apple's server. And so to verify that I can't write an Apple update that maybe has some malicious code in it, the, it, the, the update software itself is signed cryptographically by Apple. And so when an iPhone receives an update over the internet, First thing the iPhone does is check that update and says, hey, are you a real update from the actual Apple? And the update says, yes, I am. And here's my proof because I have this cryptographical signature that I could have only gotten from Tim Cook's basement, right? And Tim Cook puts a stamp of approval on that, on that update, and then the phone accepts it and installs it without question. The way that the security in an iPhone works, or Android, or any other encrypted smartphone for that matter, the pin or the face recognition or the fingerprint, whatever it is you're using, is not actually protecting your data. It's not actually securing anything. The pin or facial recognition or fingerprint or whatever it is, is actually securing the private key. And if you've listened to the show for any length of time, then you, we have explained this process ad nauseum. Generate a, a key pair, public key, private key, what one key does, the other key undoes. 
We typically divide them up as private and public key, but the truth is either can do either, right? Go either way. The private key being secured by the PIN is what is being used to secure the data. And so obviously there are a number of exploits against the authentication mechanisms of any phone. I saw a demonstration, I think it was at DEF CON last year, where they used baby powder and packing tape to be able to lift the fingerprints off of a clean surface and use that to authenticate into smartphones. Because the fingerprint reader that you get on your smartphone, I got news for you, when you spend $1,000 on a smartphone, that $1,000 is not going into the biosecurity features. It's going into all of the other stuff, and the biosecurity features are kind of like a hack-on thing. Really, what they're trying to do is keep your buddy from, you know, text messaging your girlfriend, that kind of thing. It's not really meant to stand up to the scrutiny of a, of a state-sponsored attack against the phone. And there's a number of these attacks. There's a number of exploits against Face ID. There's a number of exploits. I mean, holding a high-resolution photograph has been shown to defeat uh, face recognition technology. And to secure this, the way that mobile manufacturers have gone about the process of doing that is after a certain amount of time of incorrect authentication attempts, be it a fingerprint or facial recognition, what have you, it defaults to the PIN, being a slightly more secure and slightly more difficult thing to break than the biometric authentication. And so it might look like something like if you get three incorrect fingerprint attempts, then you have to authenticate using the PIN. Now, the, 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 there is a limited amount of times that you can use the PIN. And of course, the reason for that is because there's a limited amount of PIN combinations that you can come up with. And so with the computing power that the NSA or the FBI or even some botnets can leverage, it would be trivial to crack a four-digit PIN or a five-digit PIN. So the real security in the iPhone, or any other phone for that matter, lies in the fact that the phone will, in fact, destroy the private key after 10 incorrect attempts by default. Again, this can be changed, but after 10 incorrect PIN attempts. And even in this case, even in the case that somebody has tried the biometrics, they couldn't defeat it, they tried 10 PIN attempts, they couldn't defeat it, the data still isn't completely gone because if it's backed up in iTunes which by the article's own admission, Apple has given the iTunes backup to the FBI at their request, that data is still available to government agencies. Furthermore, Apple could quite easily, quite easily push an update to a given phone. Because recall, if the phone is going to accept an update from its manufacturer and the, that manufacturer has access to the source code of, you know, they programmatically set the phone up to destroy the private key after 10 attempts, there's nothing stopping them from crawling into the code, removing the line that says, hey, after the 10th attempt, go ahead and destroy the private key, and then push that, that special firmware, that update, either to a specific iPhone or even all iPhones and say, hey, when this particular pin is entered or when this particular action is performed or when this particular thing is done, go ahead and disregard the 10th try and we destroy the private key thing. And once that barrier has been removed, brute forcing the key space for a pin uh, is not going to take terribly long with the resources that the government can bring to bear, right? My takeaway is this. Your data is safe, not because of some super strong technical barriers in place, not because of some super strong technical encryption is in place, but because Apple refuses to remove said technical barrier, even though 
they likely have the ability to do so. When you get hit with cryptoware, that is a perfect example of only the person that sent the cryptoware is able to break it. Even the FBI has admitted that they're no longer it's it takes too much time and too much computing power to be able to break into crypto locker type viruses. And so even when even when government agencies get hit, even when police departments get hit, there was a case. I believe it was down south where something like 70,000 some uh, autopsy reports, arrest record, all sorts of stuff was encrypted with the with the crypto locker. And they contacted the FBI and said, hey, is there anything you can do to help us? We don't know what to do. And the FBI said, pay him because we can't break it. That's actual security. That's somebody controlling the private key and preventing somebody else from having access to it. And all the technology in the world uh, would have to be focused on one thing and then given enough time and enough computing power, maybe you can crack the encryption. But your data is not safe in the case of an iPhone because of some super strong encryption. The, The encryption is there, yes, but the encryption is really only as secure as the pin. And the pin is artificially secured because we have software that says, I'm only going to let you try so many pins. And that barrier can be fairly easily removed from my understanding. Additionally, consider this. Physical access in the IT security space is always king, right? We treat physical physical security as important, if not oftentimes more important than technical security, because if I can put my hands on a box, I can pretty much own it almost all day long. Again, encryption is what's going to stop me from doing that. But who has who knows what kind of attack a manufacturer has against its own hardware with unlimited time? If anybody could break into a iPhone or find hardware exploits around the problem, it's going to be Apple because they manufactured the stupid thing. Right. And they're not exactly working on a time constraint. Apple, by all appearances here, is making the right call. But it's just that it's a decision. It's a call to not release the methods or the technology that could be used to penetrate or break into a given phone. And the example that I would use is I would compare it identically to that of private internet access. You'll recall that a few weeks ago, we announced that private internet access was purchased by another company. Now, this is the internet, uh, this is the VPN service that I've been recommending since the day I went on the air, April 4th or April 3rd of 2017. And the reason is PIA has a proven track history in the court of law of not keeping records of their internet users. And so even though, again, much like in the same case of Apple, private internet access is in a position to keep logs and track users. There's nothing technically stopping them. When I connect to PIA, my real IP address is exposed to them. And because my ISP, because my IP address is assigned to my ISP and my ISP has my billing details, that means that it is literally a matter of a subpoena for you don't even need a judge just a subpoena for the isp to for the police to pick up the phone get a subpoena and for the isp to reply and say yep this is who had that ip at that time here's his physical address here's his billing details here's his contact here's his email here's his phone number yeah here's his here's a birth date here's his mother's maiden name i mean all of it right they have all of it and the only thing stopping that process from unfolding is the fact that pia says they don't keep logs and by all court appearances every time they've been pushed and they've they've been shoved against the wall it turns out you know they don't keep logs and the investigators find themselves up a creek without a paddle pia could do some bad things they choose not to do bad things and we celebrate them for that so in an in the interest of fairness i will extend apple the same courtesy apple is in very much a position to give up 
its users, to violate the privacy of users in favor of, quote unquote, the greater good. And they're choosing not to. And this is fantastic. And I'm really happy about it. But it's not to be confused with things like ProtonMail. It's not to be confused with things like Signal, in which the private key is entirely under my control, right? I control and secure with a passphrase that, that only I know. So even under scrutiny, no matter what kind of pressure is put on Signal, for example, because it uses PFS or private forward security, because I have the keys on my device, it is impossible for anybody to, 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 to obtain access to it. And plus, because of PFS, because of private forward security, if, if just for example, somebody were to obtain my private keys for one of my conversations, because there is a new key generated literally every time a, uh, you know, a connection is established, even if they got one key, PFS is going to prevent them from getting any future conversations. And so it is technologically secure, not secure by policy. Apple may have a policy that they don't, they will not publish an update or assist the FBI in breaking into the device. I'm not relying on Signal's policy to keep my conversation secure. I'm relying on the actual technology and I'm, I'm relying on, on the cryptology to keep my data secure. And I feel much, much better about that. Not giving any points to Google here, not giving any points to Android. They're all in the same boat. In fact, I would argue, uh, probably argue with you that they're in a worse boat. Silent Circle, I haven't talked about him very much on the show, but I have been doing serious research for the past few months because, of course, I'm interested in an actual secure phone. Supposedly, they make a very secure and encrypted phone. Of course, the problem is they're closed source. So uh, I guess they just expect us to take their word for it. Sailfish OS, absolutely love it. It's my new love and joy. Carry it with me everywhere I go. Take it with me everywhere I go. I put a ton of private stuff on it, but let's face it, at the end of the day, Sailfish OS is using the same driver stack that Android is using for the radios. And so any attacks that are tailored towards Android, if they're, if they're targeting the baseboard, those attacks are going to function on Sailfish OS, as they probably will for Ubi ports. And even if you custom wrote a ROM, let's say let's say you wanted to attack this in every possible way, and so you take the you know the Librem approach, and hey, we're just going to do something from the ground up, and maybe it'll even make phone calls, but we're going to do something from the ground up, and it's going to be entirely secure in every possible way. We're going to have encryption and private keys managed separately on a separate flash drive tied to a UB whatever, right? Anything you can come up with. At the end of the day, it's still a mobile device. And if it's still a mobile device and you want it to have access to any sort of cellular data, you're going to have to get either on CDMA or GSM. And that means that your IMEI or the little serial number, not serial number, but the mobile identifier that's embedded into the phone's radio so that it can communicate with the cell networks, even if you don't have activated cell service, that IMEI is being broadcasted and bouncing off of towers as you walk or drive around. And that IMEI is going to bounce from one tower to the next to the next. And every tower that it touches, it's going to be logged at that tower. And every one of those towers sends that data back to its mobile uh, carrier provider. And so all of, the, all of them are going to have access to that data. And they're going to be more than happy to turn it over to law enforcement or anybody else that comes asking for it, right? And so what you wind up with is a situation in which no matter how hard you try, you essentially carry a, a, a point blank. A, a little tracking device in your pocket and you can't shut it off and you have no say in shutting it off and we carry these things with us 24 7 365 days a year and thanks to outdated protocols like signal system 7 which is just 
it's infuriating if you, you go Google and research a little bit on Signal System 7 and how it works and why it's necessary. We basically are faced with the choices of cutting off entire continents like Africa who aren't going to be able to afford to update their cell phone equipment to the same expensive standards and employ the same kind of encryption that we would need to employ here in the U.S. and maybe in the U.K. and some other you know more established parts of the world. If we were to do that, the 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 cost alone would be staggering to us here in the U.S., let alone, uh, uh, you know, less fortunate countries. And so we are going to stay on Signal System 7 because we need the underlying GSM technology to work. And that means that we're never actually going to have truly secure mobile devices, at least not any time in the, in, in the near future. So good job, Apple. I hope they can keep it up. I hope they can withstand the, pre- the, the pressure. I understand that Donald Trump has dispatched... Uh, some of his representatives to go, you know, apply pressure to Apple to try to work with the FBI. And again, even best case scenario, they're giving the they're giving copies of the iCloud backups to the FBI, who, if they are encrypted, are more than likely going to be able to break it. And more likely than not, Apple will assist them in breaking into it. But if you read stories like this and you say to yourself, well, my iPhone is secure you're either living in la-la land or I need to get a, a smaller tinfoil hat because from where I'm sitting, buddy, mobile security looks a lot about as secure as a sieve. 855-450-NOAH. That's one 855 The email live at asknoahshow.com. Chris, West Virginia, you're on Ask Noah. Good evening. Hey, how's it going? Hey, man, Thanks good. Yeah, long time no talk. How you been? Oh, I've been doing good. Uh, so... You know, going on this whole uh, personal security that we keep getting back to, and of sure. course we need to keep getting back to it, have you heard of pCloud? I have not. Tell me about pCloud. pCloud is a Dropbox-type replacement, um, also housed, I believe it's in Sweden. Uh, isn't that where... Um, ProtonMail. Isn't that where the email... Mm-hmm. ProtonMail, yeah. Mm-hmm. ProtonMail was mm-hmm. supposed to be coming up with a Dropbox replacement. Yes, Proton Drive. In researching... Yeah, but it, it's never seemed to have gone anywhere, and it's kind of been in the works for almost two years, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. I think they're I think they're on schedule to release it this year, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Well, there is an alternative. It's called pCloud. Um, they'll give you 10 gigs free, just like Dropbox or mm-hmm. these others, and of course you get other people to sign up, whatever. Uh, they do have uh, a pricing structure, and right now it's not that bad. For $350 one-time payment, you get two terabytes for life. I see that. On top of that, um, which it's not on this page. Um, oh, sorry, my hand's on. Let me turn it off. Um, you also have the ability, uh, I believe they have a back-end like Dropbox where they can do deduplication. Mm-hmm. However, for another $125 for a lifetime fee, for a one-time fee for life, you can have all your data encrypted on their site. So by default, hold on a second now, back up. For the, for the regular 350 bucks, it's not encrypted? Well, it's encrypted, I believe, I haven't I haven't dug into that yet, and I'm kind of okay. trying to figure out why. I'm assuming it's not it, it's encrypted in transit, of course. Yep. Uh, but I believe they probably do this for the same reason Dropbox does for deduplication. Mm. So if you've got the same file in your drive and I've got the same file in my drive, well, you know, hey, they don't have to store it twice. Right. But they offer the ability for it to be encrypted. 
on there as well. They do have a very good interface. Uh, you can listen to your music on their website. You can watch videos from their website. Um, I haven't I haven't tested it yet, but from what I've been reading, it's very it's very good. I'll tell if you what. You encrypt your data. You cannot see if you if you pay the hundred twenty five dollars to encrypt it at rest. Even when you're viewing your files in the web browser, you don't see um, thumbnails or previews because it's encrypted and they can't okay. show you that. I, 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 was just, I, I was looking at another site, so I'm starting to get an understanding of how it works. So you're right. So it's encrypted by default in transit. At rest, it, it, is, it is encrypted, but they retain the key for the purpose of deduplication as well as providing that on the... On, on a web portal, if you want to take control of those keys, then there's an extra fee for that, is, is what I'm gathering from their website. Yeah. A one-time $125 fee added to your, what was it, 350 But then mm-hmm. then it is, a, it is a Dropbox replacement that only you control, despite the fact it's on their site. I'll tell you what stands... I'll so, tell you, Chris, here's what, here's what concerns me about this, uh, uh, about this is... Anytime I see a service that is 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 new to the market and offers a lifetime subscription, I'm immediately skeptical, and here's why. I have seen more services that have come and gone. They come there, they have a lifetime subscription, they make their they make their tens of thousands or whatever, and then they go out of business, right? They had uh, what was the what was the VPS company Cloud at Cost? I think it was. I don't know if they're still around, but. They started, it was like, it was, the their pitch was like, you know, pay 149 bucks and you have a VPS for life, you know, like t- some small thing, you know, like a 512 yeah. gig, megs of RAM and, and like a two, 10 gig hard drive or something. That lasted what, like a year and a half? And then they sent an email out to all their subscribers and said, yeah, just kidding. Uh, you have to pay per month or we're going to turn your server off. I, I just, I'm not sure that those, that that model paying a lifetime thing is, is sustainable. I think they require growth and I think they require in, in ongoing fees. So I'm a little skeptical, but they do name drop some fairly large names that, uh, that are apparently using, uh, uh, P uh, P cloud. And so this is definitely something to watch. I, you know, the other thing that I would really love to see is I'd love to see what the software licensing is for the actual software platform itself. It would be interesting to see like if P drive P cloud drive could be used, uh, on Linux or if that's only available to Mac OS and windows. Oh no no they they do have a they do have a Linux client they, they do have okay a Linux COI client yeah interesting so you could put you could drop it on a Linux server if you only had COI access it, they have that well I'll tell you no matter what I am I'm inclined to uh, to try their premium plus for seven ninety nine a month and just see how far that gets me it's ninety five bucks for the year two terabytes of storage two terabyte download link um, and thirty day trash history that's that's worth trying. I also like the fact that they divide up between P Cloud Business and P Cloud for Family, um, it, and they uh, offer a free subscription. So I'm I'm gonna sign up for this and, and check it out. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, you're talking about it. I figured. Yeah. Why not. I think they might even have file versioning for for. I say I'm not in the right spot now. I, I believe they have file versioning just they like do. Dropbox. It, it it is. It looks like a Dropbox replacement. Um, someone pointed this out to me. And uh, yeah, I, I, I'm with you on the lifetime purchase. I am. I mean, you know, Dropbox. I, people thought Dropbox was going to come and go, and turns out it's a good idea. So you know, why not? Uh, but you know, like you said, 
you, you you put you put two terabytes. Well, I mean, you can get more than two terabytes as well. You can pay more and go beyond. But you know, you keep you know your lifetime family photos up there, and they decide tomorrow to go buy. Well, there goes all your stuff. Right. Right, and but you know the thing about you know, the thing about sync clients, and this is one of the things that I think is, is sometimes overlooked. The nice thing about sync clients are they're just that they're sync clients. So even when the server dies, or even when the service goes offline, at least you still have a copy of your own data, right? And the more machines you have it on, the more quote unquote back. I mean, it's not really a backup, but the more quote unquote backups you have. Unless you're using OneDrive, where it tries to be smart and decides that, oh, you don't need this on your computer. You haven't accessed it for a while. So we're going to delete that off your local workstation, and, uh, and we'll keep it in the cloud. We'll keep it safe. I would, I would drive down to, uh, <laughs> to, uh, to Redmond, Washington, and smack, smack a boy upside the head, I tell you what. I, uh, I, I'm going to check you know, this out. You know that is a feature, right? I, I, I've, honestly, I have one client. I have one client out of all the clients. I, you know, three hundred and some active clients. I think we have this year, and one client is using OneDrive, and they hate it. They, they started using it, and the, the only way they're able to access, um, their data is through Teams. And I had a conversation with them. They oh, said, yeah, listen, it's just, it's just oh, not gosh. practical for us, and so we, they're, they're going to go back to ZFS. Uh, teams is, yeah, I don't. Yeah. yeah, it's but a no, that is that is a default OneDrive setup. Is if you don't access it for a certain amount of time, and I don't know what that time frame is, it will actually delete it off your hard drive and wait for you to double click on it next time to download. Unless you write what a feature. Say, always keep this on my local drive. Yeah, what a feature. Hey, Chris, let me ask you this: You ever played with C uh, C file? Oh yeah, I have a, I have a C file instance. Uh, I'd yeah, be I'd be I'd be real interested to see how P Cloud compares with C file. I'll tell you why. At seven ninety nine a month, I start to do math, Chris, and that's a dangerous thing in, for a man in my position. I start to do math, and I start to say to myself, I can buy a Dell R four twenty for two to four hundred dollars off of the internet with a substantial amount of RAM, like thirty two to sixty four gigs. And I can I can outfit that jobby with ten maybe let's say four ten terabyte hard drives so I've got some serious redundancy in there and then I can go rack it in a data center for a hundred bucks a month or so right and I start to do math and say to myself how many users you think I could squeeze out of that box reliably and then how many users do you think I could squeeze out of that box and then if I doubled the box and 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 had a backup and a redundant in a second data center. Um, it wouldn't take very. It wouldn't take too many accounts before you've broken even, and it would take just a couple more accounts before you're seriously raking in some money. And I'd be interested to see what features P Cloud offers that C File doesn't, because with the proper ho the, really what the advantage in P Cloud right is the hosting is that you just you go on their website you just sign up right. Right. Aside from that, we actually I mean between Nextcloud and and C File we actually have. A lot of these features covered. The only thing I'm seeing in C in uh, P Cloud is actually the thing that made me want to sign up. I've been looking for something that will allow me to sync my music and uh, and let me play it anywhere I'm at. It's not it's not my primary music collection. I'm not using it to store my data, that kind of thing. I just want to be able to take some songs, throw them in one place, and then have access to those songs everywhere. And I'm familiar. I've tried some of the self-hosted solutions. I've never really been blown away with them. Um, if I could buy, if I could pay one time, get a lifetime access to two terabytes and throw some stuff on there, man, I'd take that deal in a heartbeat. Aren't you, aren't you doing that with C file now? Don't you have clients on C file? Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure we do. In fact, we get people sign up all the time. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a fairly decent deal. I think we only charge them nine bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, something like that. 
and um, and uh, we host it in 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 the data set. We don't own the data center; we rent it, but we we host it there. And uh, so you have a professional IT company that has Linux at its heart and been doing it for a number of years and for a number of different clients. And so people, we have everybody from people that incorrectly, I, I might point out, and they're aware of it, incorrectly by my view, use it as a backup service. Uh, all the way to uh, families that just want to be able to share their private photos with uh, with just their family members, and they don't want it syncing all over the internet. And C C file, correct me if I'm wrong, also gives you one time download links or download links that you can revoke. Yes. On individual files, and so that's what P Cloud also. Okay. Yeah, you know what? I think I will. Since you, that's a good point, uh, I will install. I will get the free ten dollar ten gig version and mm-hmm. uh, I'll compare C file to this. Yeah. yeah take a take a look. Fantastic. Yeah, let's let's uh, let's uh let's sync up and compare notes then cuz I'd be interested in see where this goes. Okay. Sounds good. Cool. Thanks for the call, man. 855-450-NOAA. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. That's how you make your voice heard become part of the program. The KDE community wants all of the Windows 7 users that are out on the in the cold today to migrate to Plasma after Microsoft's 10-year-old operating system reaches the end of support today. And you're not going to receive any security or bug fixes anymore. So Windows 7, if you've been living under a rock in the IT sphere, will no longer receive bug fixes, security updates, the whole kit and caboodle. Microsoft is done with it, and it's going to start leaving users exposed to attacks devised to exploit new vulnerabilities. And you better believe the time is ripe. Right now, people are going to be looking for these exploits. Why? Because now is the time where Microsoft is not continually releasing updates and you have the vast majority of users are, are still haven't migrated. Heck, I was working a couple of weeks ago with a company who was deploying an ATM machine still on XP embedded. And that's how far behind certain aspects. And this is a place you put your credit card or your debit card into, I might add. That's how far behind the IT sphere is at catching up and being quote unquote current. So KDE has a pitch. The KDE community says that it wants to help people migrate from one of the 25 Linux distributions offering support for Plasma. Quote, instead of migrating to Windows 10 and putting up with hours of updates, intrusions on your privacy, annoying ads built into your apps, install a Linux operating system with Plasma, KDE says. Now, I would love to sit here and tell you that I only work on Linux all day, day in and day out. It's all I think about. And the truth is, while I have my Linux laptop sitting in front of me, it's all I use. I don't have any Windows boxes running in my house. The truth is, there are plenty of businesses, for one reason or another, believe that they have to have Windows. And thus, I'm happy to charge them a fair rate and maintain their Windows boxes. We spent all last week and all of the week before and probably are going to spend the next two, three weeks upgrading clients from Windows 7 to Windows 10. Now, if you're a client of ours and you listen to us to begin with, then you have a virtual infrastructure and that process is much less painful because we can do it from anywhere because driving to your site and connecting with with uh, Vert Manager is really no more advantageous than connecting from sitting in my skippies in my, in my bedroom and doing your upgrade there, right? So if you're using virtualized environment, there's a little bit less of a rub, but either way, you're going to be upgrading all of these Windows 7 boxes to Windows 10. So we spend all this time doing doing these upgrades and we had a client. They were thrilled when we said, all right, we're all done. Finally, they were not thrilled that it took like four and a half hours to not only do the upgrade, but then to 
uh, file in all of the Windows updates. It took their business offline for like two and a half hours. Now, you try to mitigate that as much as you can. You schedule the call during off-peak hours. You do it during a slow part of the day. Doing it during a slow part of the week. You try to stagger the updates so that you don't have too many machines offline at the same time. But at the end of the day, we only have so much staff. Every computer that's running Windows 7 that people have kicked this can down the road for I don't know how long, they're not, they haven't done anything. So the choice is we either schedule them to do the update uh, to fire when nobody's around, and so we could ske schedule it say, hey, th these are the working hours. You can do that in Windows 10. And But then nobody from Speed is going to be there, so if they do run into problems, they're hosed. Or they get charged time and a half, and we'd be happy to come do it at like 2 in the morning when their business is closed, but they're going to pay time and a half. Uh, or they put up with their business essentially being hamstrung for two hours while Windows does its thing. So how does that compare to Plasma? Well, Plasma you can have up and running in about 30 minutes, and you'll have all of the same security and stability features of a Linux system with all of the features and ease of use of Plasma. And by the way, I am getting numbers in from 2019 for UltraSpeed Technologies, and on average, our Windows service calls are about three times longer than that of a Linux service call. We go into Linux, we go into a service call for a client that is running Linux desktops. It takes a few minutes. We do the updates. We're out of there. Uh, you do that on Windows 10, and we're there for an hour minimum, right? KDE's move to advertise Plasma to the future Windows 7 refugees is going to attract huge amount of a huge amount they think is going to attract huge new users from the Linux side given that Windows currently has more than 77% of the global desktop market while Linux has just under 2%. And out of the 77% market share, 26% of those are Windows 7 users amounting to roughly 1 billion people that can't let go of Windows 7 because either they don't like Windows 10, they're afraid of Windows 10, they're afraid of the changes in Windows 10. They don't understand Windows 10. They don't understand why they have to leave Windows 7. I, I think probably half the clients that we have started upgrade migration procedures for have asked me point blank, well, why can't we just stay on Windows 7? KDE also provides a video that recommends upgrading from Windows 7 to KDE Plasma and shows how you can make the Plasma desktop look and behave like a Windows 7 box. You can make it look like Mac OS. You can make it look like Windows 10. It makes the transition to Linux a lot easier. And these are the kind of tools I wish I had had 10 years ago when I started UltraSpeed Technologies because my goal back then, as it really is today as well, it's just we kind of want so I back off. But my goal back then was to try to get as many Linux users as we possibly could because what my experience has told me over 10 years that when you transition somebody from a Windows system over to Linux, they don't go back because it works better, it's faster, it's more secure, it's more stable. It provides a more consistent operating experience for them. Plasma is also highly adaptable and can be tweaked to behave like other OSs too, including macOS, Ubuntu, and many others, making it the perfect environment for users or other platforms who want to switch to Linux. When it comes to apps, KDE says that you'll be able to find programs including alongside Plasma. There are office applications, web browsers, audio and video players, program for design, video editing, and audio editing. I'll stop there and just point out that in 2020, the times that I come across a user today that says, oh, I can't run my preferred application is almost never, right? Even Office 365 works well in Linux. Teams works, <laughs> Teams, Microsoft Teams is available for Linux. And as much as a hard time as I give people who use Microsoft Teams, it is irrelevant as I believe that Teams is and is going to continue to be. The fact that it's available on Linux is nothing short of awesome. So if you're interested 
in upgrading from Windows 7 to a free alternative that does almost everything Windows 10 will do, except doesn't have the monitoring of your activity and sending your data back to Microsoft without your consent, doesn't have the $200 price tag, doesn't have the inability to disable updates. You'll have more speed, you'll have more security, you'll have more reliability, you'll have more consistent appearance. Give KDE a shot. And if you're asking me, the article doesn't recommend this, I would specifically recommend Kubuntu. We'll have a link in the show notes, but I have to tell you something. When I started using KDE, it was uh, it was a test. And I had no intention whatsoever of staying with KDE. In fact, at the time that I switched, I was going to use it for a week and then get back to something else. I was just so fed up with GNOME crashing on me and dumping all of my work that I just needed something else. And so I was going to go to something. And at the time, of KDE was recommended. I thought I'd give it a shot, right? Well, I knew that KDE was doing something right because five months later, I had to power up my laptop because the battery died. Didn't catch it in time. Didn't plug it in in time. Battery shut. The computer shut off all the way, not just went into standby. Like it, it died, died. And so I plugged it in, started back up and went, oh yeah, I haven't booted this thing in a while. And then I get prompted for my Lux prompt. And I looked at it and I went, huh, uh, this is three hours before my show. And I don't have a clue as to what I set that Lux encryption password because I didn't really, frankly, expect to keep this install past the week. I was going to reinstall. Remember that? And then it just never crashed and just kept running. So I never did reinstall. And so three hours before the show, I dump all of my show prep and reinstall Kubuntu. And I've been running it ever since. Needless to say, I will leave KDE when somebody pries the desktop environment from my cold, dead hands. I spend on average, 18 hours plus on my laptop most days. So I have a fairly low tolerance for crap that doesn't work right. I have a fairly low tolerance for laptops that are going to cause me problems. I have a company to run. I have a family to see. I have kids to take care of. The last thing I need to be doing, the last thing I want to be doing when I'm paid to fix other people's networks and computing problems is sit around and futz around with my own laptop and my own software. I don't have time for it. I need a laptop that works. I need to be able to pull it out of my bag every single time, open it up, type in my password, and get to work every single time. I can't deal with exceptions. And in my experience, and your mileage may vary, KDE is the way to go there. I don't have problems with KDE. I pull my laptop out. I have very high expectations for it. I buy good hardware. I have, this is a Lenovo X1 Carbon. Been very, very happy with it. I do have my Pinebook Pro came today. I pulled it out of the box long enough just to get some first impressions. Fantastic looking screen. Fantastic build quality. Review to come. Visit youtube.com slash media. You'll see it there when it, when it drops. But I have high expectations for laptops. And if you want the business standard choice, then go pick up a copy of Windows 10 Professional for 199 bucks. By the way, don't buy it from Microsoft. Go buy it on Amazon because if you buy the flash drive on Amazon or Newegg, you get it for like $149 or something. If you buy it straight from Microsoft, just the digital download, apparently they, that convenience is an extra 50 bucks. But go, that's, that's your choice. Go install Windows 10. Now, if you want a better experience and you don't want to pay for it and you don't want to have to reinstall your operating system ever again and have it bogged down to 50% of the speed it was when it was Windows 7, well, then go download a Kubuntu, flash that to a drive and install it. If you need some help doing that, write into live at asknoahshow.com. Ask me for some help. If you're in the Grand Forks area, give us a call at 866-280-1433. Call customer care. Tell them you want some help. Tell them you want to upgrade from Windows 7 to a better operating system. We'd be happy to help you. 
Again, open phones this hour, 855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Davin calls from New York. Hey, Davin, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Uh, good, uh, good night. How are you? Hey, pretty good, sir. How are you? I'm okay. I'm glad you got your pine book. I had asked you a couple shows ago if you had got it. Um, the, the default OS is okay. Okay. Um, when you press the pine key and it opens up the programs, you see a little jitter, but I highly recommend using Manjaro. Okay. Highly, but I actually had a question about Manjaro on the pine book. Okay. So, um, the issue is when I man the the man database wasn't installed. So after I installed it, um, after I install a package, I try to do what is in the package name. Mm-hmm. It doesn't do it. So I have to generate um, the the man database with uh, man db dash c. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering, is there a way that I can edit it to automatically do that? Because in all of my other systems, once I install the package, I could just easily do like a what is or a propus, and it would populate with the with that summary. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Unfortunately, it's not one I have the answer to off the top of my head, but I tell you what, here's the nice thing about the Ask Noah show is the community is about, I don't know, 50 times smarter than I am. And so right now at this very moment, somebody is furiously typing an email to live at asknoahshow.com. Here's how you do that. And I'll find out about it in about five minutes and then I'll have the answer for you next week. So we'll answer the question. I just don't have it off the top of my head. That's a great idea. That's a a great point though. Okay, um, I guess last comment would be if you do install Manjaro, because I didn't have this issue when I first installed it, and then mm-hmm. a couple I had to reinstall a couple times. Um, after I installed the system and rebooted, the desktop was blank, and I believe the solution to that was the, um, I think it was a, the time zone. You had to do like a pseudo sysk <laughs> uh, ct, it was something along those lines, but it's a, uh, that was the 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 solution to it. So hopefully somebody has that issue where it's just a blank screen. Mm-hmm. I believe it's because of the, the time zone. So interesting. That's a weird. That do you have any idea why that? Co- did you when you when you were fixing it? Did you ever come across an explanation as to why the time zone affects the uh, the display? That is actually a great question. I was just going through the forums and I just happened to find it because I'm using KDE KDE Plasma and I don't, Good for you. I don't know why I did that, but the moment I did it. It just worked. Huh. Well, that's fantastic. I appreciate the the recommendation. I hadn't really decided on a disk drive. When I pulled it out of the box, the thing that kind of stood out to me was they they already set a username and a password. And that was yeah. a little that was a little strange. You know, like every other laptop, even if I downloaded a, like the, the Ubuntu proper image has an OEM setup. I mean, Ubuntu even has an OEM setup to where when the user starts a laptop up for the first time, it prompts them for their name and stuff. So, I, you know, I pull it out and it says Rocky and log in with the password Rocky or whatever. I thought, huh, that's kind of an interesting way to do it. But uh, and the other thing that I mean, I mean, what do you expect for a $200 computer? But the other thing that I was a little disappointed was I was kind of hoping they would include a, a type C charger instead of the, the, the barrel connector since it has type C on it. Yes. Mm-hmm. The charger did not feel like it was it's super high quality. Slow for the charging. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, uh, but here's the thing. What they lack in charging and packaging and stuff like that, they more than make up in the quality of the laptop itself. And man, that display looks good. That's one of the sharpest displays I've I seen agree. in a long time. Mm-hmm. Hey, I appreciate the call. I appreciate the call, my friend. Thank you. I appreciate it. Have yeah. a good day. Yeah, you too. 855-450-NO. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Actually, you have to call me back next week because we are out of time. 
I invite you to go over to podcast.asknoahshow.com. If you're not doing that, you're only getting part of the show because when I talk about if you're listening to the show and you're saying to yourself, well, how does he know that Apple does it this way or, or Pinebook had that or this, all of those articles, all of the things I use to reference and talk on the show, I provide all of those to you in the show notes. You can get those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. There's also all of the articles that we didn't have time to get to, things like Linus not wanting to include ZFS in the kernel. You can read all about it there. We'll see you back next week, 6 p.m. Tuesday at asknoahshow.com. Have a good week.